Matthew chapter 1. Are you ready? Here we go. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. I love that line. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Hmm. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, as I read, if some of you are reading from the King James Bible, you'll notice a few letters that, that are changed. So I'll pronounce it in the way that we are accustomed to pronouncing it. It's the same name. Here's verse 2. Abraham begat or procreated. He fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Fariz and Zara of Tamar. And Fariz begat Isram and Isram begat Aram. And Aram begat Abinadab. And Abinadab begat Naasan. And Naasan begat Salmon. Not salmon, salmon. Do you read salmon? The first time I was reading this, when I was young, I read salmon. It's salmon. He's not a fish. Although salmon is very good. In fact, if you should get, you should eat more salmon. And salmon begat Boaz. So his name would be Boaz, B-O-A-Z, of Rahab. Everyone say Rahab. And Rahab and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Obed of Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of Hur. We all know who Hur meant. That was Bathsheba. That's the fourth woman you just heard. You heard you heard Tamar. You heard Ruth. Uh, you heard Rahab and now Bathsheba. Four women. Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. All right. Did you get that now? There's four women included in the first few verses of the... I didn't say it earlier today, but the Lord moved on me so many days in a row, and I've prayed that God would open up His Word to me, and He did it, and I stand here just as a messenger oracle of the blessed Word of God. I'm humbled by it because I know me. I know me. Nobody knows me like I know me. Except my wife. She'll tell you she thinks she knows me better than I know me. And I keep telling her it's not true. I'm preaching today this word. I had no right. But he made a way. Come on.
come on you ought to lift up your voices right now to God he's a good God oh we love you Jesus and we magnify you today When you're seated, I want you to put your Bibles down and I want you to clap again to the Lord. I want you to praise God. I want you to make a loud noise with your mouth. I want you to do it with your whole heart. I want you to cry out praises and thanksgiving to the Most High God. He's a great God. Amen. 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 Matthew chapter 1 is the door of the New Testament, another Genesis moment. Matthew will write under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. It is a unique writing. These first few verses might be easily overlooked if you're just reading through this Gospel of Matthew, but there are underlying messages even in The first few verses of the chapter. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. It simply means that Matthew will record the family record of descent. A chronological order of fathers and then their sons. It is the family lineage traced from Abraham to Jesus Christ. Men are listed because their name and their names are tied to the heritage of the family. All in plurality, all of them are passed down to their sons. Some of those men were faithful and true, but among them there were fallible men, fathers with indecency marking their path. Some with immorality in their step. Others with deceit. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. They are listed in order to give credence to the birth of the Messiah. The prophets of old had foretold of this coming Messiah. Those living in the days of Matthew knew that the Messiah would be the son of David, the heir of Abraham, He would be born of a virgin and anointed as a king. So Matthew is appealing to the Jewish mind while opening the door to a worldwide inclusion. That's you. Mm -hmm. Jesus fits the profile. Born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophetic place and the role and the lineage Jesus will be presented as the head while Abraham and David assume the roles of trustee. They all give credence to the Lord Jesus being the Messiah. The Lord's pedigree begins with Abraham. Abraham to Jesus is 42 generations. That's three fourteens or six sevens. Which gives clarity to the dual nature of Jesus Christ. Six being the number of man and seven combined with seven which is the number of divine perfection. He is the undisputed incarnate God, Emmanuel, God, one of us. 
and without controversy, great is the mystery of God. God was manifested in the flesh. God was justified in the spirit. God was seen of angels. God was preached unto the Gentiles. He was believed on in the world. He was received up into glory. In the beginning was the word, the thought, and the word became flesh. The word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. That was the eternal spirit wrapped up in a human body, that one and only spirit now presented in human form with blood and a body, limited and yet without limitation, finite and yet infinite, all occupying the same place, space, and placement. And Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the one and only almighty existing in the form of a human being, which was a sacrifice. This is the apologetics of Matthew to the Jewish mind. But also hidden in the narrative, in the scene, is the inclusion of the entire Gentile race from which all of us come. Matthew opens the door to reveal the parentage of Abraham. Are you ready? Abraham, who first held the covenant, which was given to him, it was then passed down to the one who first made the covenant. Let's do that again. Abraham was the first man to have the covenant. He held the covenant. And then in his lineage, it was passed down to the one who first made the covenant. <laughs> because Paul wrote that in Jesus dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And now if you need Jesus to speak on the subject, then look no further than John eight fifty eight, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Oh my. I'm going to take you the long way because there are no shortcuts as to where we need to go today. And there's no evening service. And we ain't got no place to go. But maybe to a restaurant. And I know that all of you could fast for at least a couple more minutes. And when you get done fasting today, you'll be incredibly spiritual. And then you'll get up with the mind of God. When Tammy and I was first, were first married way back, we lived in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. I can remember that little kitchen. And we had, someone gave us some, some border wallpaper. We put it up border wallpaper and, and I don't I, I think it's still there in that little house we went to visit it it was a little townhouse had three levels and uh, I can remember we had gotten a hold of Oprah Winfrey's potato soup recipe I don't know why we wanted that but we said we're gonna make Oprah Winfrey <laughs> potato soup and so we got the recipe out but it called for leeks and we didn't know what leeks were so we didn't add those. In fact, every item that we didn't understand, we just left out. It was the worst Oprah Winfrey potato soup that you've ever had, and we threw it out. <laughs> so I'm going to put all the ingredients in, because if you don't get all the ingredients, you want to understand, and it won't taste right to you when you get done with this day. No shortcuts. So just know this. Perfection is found in Jesus of Nazareth. Mark the perfect man, the Bible says, there was only one. He that knew no sin took on sin. He had no fault, yet he carried our griefs and our sorrows. And Matthew will usher us 
into the establishment of prophetic revelation that indeed Jesus was the son of David, the son of Abraham. Somebody said amen. Now the end of the chapter speaks of his mother Mary, but before you find her, you're going to have to pass by four other unlikely but intentionally placed women named in Matthew's genealogical presentation. Rahab, Ruth, Tamar, and Bathsheba. They did not need to be mentioned there except by design of the Holy Ghost. There is no reason to make mention of them. The secular historian offers no reason, nor does the Jewish tradition dictate such a thing. In fact, their names, I'm sorry ladies, this is not offensive to you, I hope. This is just in the Bible days. But their names gave no value to their children or their offspring. In those days, their names would not allow for the transfer of properties or lands or possessions or positions. But by divine appointment, Matthew includes them in the Holy Writ for our benefit and for our blessing. Rahab was from Canaan and she was a harlot. Her people stood in the way of the promised land. Ruth was from Moab. She came from the lineage Created by incest. Born from the corrupt heart of one of Lot's daughters. Abraham's nephew, Lot. Lot went to live in Sodom. He moved there purposely. Can you imagine it? He intentionally raised his daughters in that place. He lived in the most wicked city of his time. Which God would ultimately destroy by fire. The Bible says that Lot's two daughters were virgins. The problem was that their environment corrupted them. Their culture distorted their hearts and their minds. And both of them did something that defies all boundaries of decency in any age or time. It was sick and sinful. They were virgins, but they were corrupted. Which just shows us that the carnal mind will eventually distort your entire body. They were virgins, but they were not pure. Purity is a matter of the heart that affects your body. If you don't keep your heart pure, then your words and your actions and your lifestyle will soon catch up to mirror your corrupt heart. It's only a matter of time, so keep your heart, for out of it comes the issues of life. Rahab and Ruth were included in the Bible. Matthew called out four women. The last two, which we don't have time to explore today, were both adulteresses. Tamar and Bathsheba both committed adultery. Even still, all four of them sit forever in the entryway of the Messiah, Jesus Christ the righteous. God included them, and now they occupy a place that cannot be changed. The placement of their names, ladies and gentlemen, is a sermon preached by the intent of the Holy Spirit today, and I am compelled to preach it to you. They should not be there. They had no right to be there. So many of the others, mothers that were not mentioned, they were good mothers. They were good wives. They were not abhorrent or wicked. They were Jewish mothers with kindness and faithfulness in their days. Many of them were women of faith and courage, guiding their sons and their daughters to keep the law. But God thought it important to make mention of their names which had no right simply because are you ready because he is God and he was looking for a church to come he was looking at you when he had Matthew enter their names in the holy writ uh -huh. 
Can I just tell you something? We had no right. I got to say to somebody, we had no right, but God made a way. We were not a people, but God made a way. We were lost in trespasses and sins, but God gave us entry. We were not the chosen, but he grafted us in. Hey, and somebody ought to shout, thank you, Lord, because you made a way for me when there was no way for me to get in. Doesn't matter what the Jewish tradition says. God put them in the book for a reason. The learned historian who ponders their entry, he can question it all he wants. God put him, put them there as a showcase of his redemptive power and of his mercy that endures through all generations and through all situations. That's how you got here, ladies and gentlemen. You came to this place because he decided to include you. I'll just finish the verse and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You're not saved because you did anything great. It is the gift of God. Okay. Think of the setting here. Now think just with me for a moment. Israel is ready to take the promised land. Israel is now a much younger nation. God waited 40 years to get rid of the doubters before he allowed the people access to the land of Canaan. A generation has died off in the desert and doubt went with them. Consider that. <laughs> doubt with, with, went with the older generation. They were, they were people who were never content. God's promise of the land came with a clause, however. They had to fight to secure it. They had to work to earn it. Because the promise never comes without work. God will give you a promise, but then He will have a clause. You have to work the you have to work the promise. People have this crazy notion that well, God gave me a promise; it's just going to fall from the sky. No, you have to still be diligent and work for it. And Joshua lead them into the land, but they had to develop it. Here now, they had to fight for it. They had to work for it. They had to earn it, and then they had to protect it. They had to find value in it. And then they had to tell their children about it so its value wouldn't be lost and so that subsequent generations would not lose it or sell it or give it away. Listen carefully now. The first generation, they have dangers that the second generation do not face. The first generation fights to get in. The first generation has to overcome the abandonment of their family as they leave their past behind. They have to leave the comfort of their former life. But the second generation, now they see the sacrifice of their parents and they know all the stories by heart. But they're not engaged and they don't have the same dangers. So they don't have to fight the same battles. And then their children come along the third generation and they wonder why all the fighting, what all the fuss, and they refuse to engage. And then when they don't pass it down, the fourth generation becomes disassociated. If the first does, oh no. If the first generation does not allow the second to join in the sacrifice, 
then they'll have no they'll have no love for what they found and then they'll pass down an apathetic spirit to the third generation and the third generation will come to despise the offering if the first doesn't demand servanthood of their children then the second will purposely keep their children the third from the sacrifice and the third won't ever make mention of it to the fourth here, Pastor, now, if you don't allow your children to sacrifice, there'll come a day when your family will come to despise the things that you find valuable. Do not keep your children from sacrifice and from servanthood. Do not dumb it down. Because if you do, they will eventually hate your commitment. Grandchildren and great-grandchildren have openly mocked the very apostolic doctrine that their grandparents once died for and gave up their lives for. Ah, that's right. Why? Because mom and daddy, they kept their kids away from making a sacrifice. They didn't want their kids to carry the burden of the gospel. They didn't want their children to feel the sting of being separated from the world. So they dressed up their children in clothes that softened the separation. And they taught their children how to compromise with the sinner. And then they convinced themselves that blending in was okay as long as you just loved Jesus and he was in your heart. So another generation grew up thinking that the trial of their faith was a hardship and not a blessing. And they grew up thinking that giving tithes and offerings was unnecessary. And obedience was just brainwashing. So instead of embracing the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the Bible and all the blessings, they rejected truth and they traded it for convenience and they traded the church for their current culture. And I'm seeing it happening all over the world today and all over the United States today. Because our parents said, you don't, have to, you don't have to mow the grass. There's no reason to vacuum the carpet. Somebody else will do that. You don't have to be a, make a sacrifice. Hey, listen, you don't have to do all that stuff. And they kind of dumbed it down. And they said, we'll do it for you. And when offering time came around, they said, oh, honey, you keep your money. I'll put in a little extra for you. So they kept them from sacrifice. And so they had a disdain for the sacrifice. And by the time the third generation came around, they were wondering, what's all the fuss about? We can come when we want to come. And they kept everything from their children. And the fourth generation knows nothing about it I didn't say it this morning but I'm going to say it to you because in the afternoon I have better clarity of thought (laughs) one of our apostolic churches in the south in Texas the senior pastor was a powerful man of God and he died and another man came in And he dumbed down all the doctrine. And then his son-in-law took over and he further eroded all the doctrine. And one of my friends went to preach there and the choir was in the choir loft while he was preaching. And he started talking about speaking in other tongues. And the youth pastor's wife leaned forward to her friends in the choir loft and said, What is speaking in other tongues? What's that about? They went so far away from the apostolic doctrine that three generations later, nobody even knew what the apostolic doctrine was about. They didn't even know about the day of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to tell all you grandparents, 
you impose sacrifice on your children and your grandchildren. I want to tell all of you parents today, if you can hear this word from your pastor, you open the door to servanthood every time you get a chance. Because if you want to keep the land, if you want to keep the promise, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to instill sacrifice everywhere you go to everybody you know. Joshua was leading a group of younger people because the older people were so full of grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining. They were filled with doubt and division. Hear me, older folks in the church. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Be thankful. At the worst in the church, it's still miles better than being good in the world. God had to let them die off before he opened the door to the land of promise that flowed with milk and honey. A generation had to die before they, they were allowed entry. And I wonder how many churches are but a few good funerals away from revival. <laughs> let me just remind you. I got to remind somebody. You didn't have a right. You don't have a right, but God made a way. You were born in sin, but God made a way. You were lost and blind and naked and cold, but God made a way. You really ought not even be here, but God made a way. You ought not even know where the church is, but God made a way. You ought not even know his name, but God made a way. You ought not know anything about the love and the mercy of, of the Lord, but God made a way. You didn't have a right, but God made a way. Huh? Joshua's leading. I'm trying to get to my sermon here. <laughs> Got to get all this, all this in here now. Joshua's leading, but it was up to the people to fight the battle. Here, here's the land, but we got to fight the battle. So he came to Jericho. This is the first city. Jericho was Joshua's first and most important battle. And Joshua knew that this well-fortified city would come to define his entire leadership. But instead of choosing heads of the tribes like they did when they were spying out the land originally, Joshua chose men with nothing to lose. He purposely found two spies that had nothing to lose because people with nothing to lose always work harder for the kingdom. Two spies entered the city of Jericho, not to see if it could be conquered. They knew they were going to conquer it. But they were simply there to map out the interior of the city, to see the placement of the armaments and other essentials that would need to be secured when the army of Israel broke through. That was the difference between Moses' ten spies and Joshua's two spies. The first group was scratching their heads, wondering, buckling in fear if they could take the land. But the second group was making plans for the after party. <laughs> Joshua sent in two men. Now watch this. They were on assignment. But when they entered Jericho, they were found out. They were not incognito. Someone saw them. I don't know how good of spies they were because they were immediately found out. People were looking for them. Someone reported that two strangers had entered the city. It caused panic among the people. 
Like the Bible says that king, that the king of Jericho heard that they were there and he began to search for them. Biblical historians write that the entire population became tense as they realized they had been infiltrated by Joshua's men. And I read, and it was told the king of Jericho saying, behold, there came men in hither, hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. There is a search underway. We do not know how long they were searching for them or where they went. But the Bible will leap ahead as it simply says in the next verse. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house. For they come to search out all the country. Rahab. She is a known woman. By the most degrading profession of them all. She is a harlot, a prostitute. She exists for the contentment of another. She is used and misused. Rahab is emblematic of a hundred cultures and a million cities spanning centuries of time. The harlot has not disappeared. The world has not rid itself of this awful practice. A million and more women, young and old, have given themselves away, lost themselves, and are lost to others. 6,000 years of human history has not changed the narrative of the life of the used, abused, and misused prostitute. The world is cruel, ladies and gentlemen, and the devil is a liar. The harsh nature of it all is spelled out in the scripture without any hesitation. The Bible's description depicts her dwelling place. This holy book presents the matter without consideration of our most modest particulars as it calls it the harlot's house. It's Rahab's house. It's her business. Depravity lives there. Desire walks in and shame walks out. It is stained by the hustle, known by the city, filled with remorse and dishonor. In those days, even in the heathen nation, they might stone a harlot for her vile acts. She was of the lowest caliber of any society. In the ancient world, she was not much better than the leper. At least the leper had no choice. Rahab, like all prostitutes of her day, had no rights. She can make no appeal if by chance she is beaten or left wounded by some angry patron. And as uncomfortable as my words may sound today, I am only scratching the surface of the degradation of the harlot's house. Her house is the place from which mothers hide their sons. Wives steer their husbands from her door. Daughters are told of her, and they see her as an example of what not to be, what never to become. The sex trade being the most dehumanizing among the people. It was true then and it's true now. There is no whitewashing here. I will not gloss it over or make it less than what it was. Rahab, the prostitute, the house of the harlot. She and her kind have wrecked a thousand homes, distorted as many marriages. She presents a lie and confusion. Anger and bitterness infects her patrons upon their exit. Men hate themselves and their wives hate them more. She is the object of their betrayal. She is the host of their vain thoughts played out in real time. The prostitute makes her living, corrupting her community. It is no wonder that she has no standing, no respect, no regard, no rights, no entitlement. 
I know that what I am saying today is disdained. I know that it is reserved for hushed tones and whispers told off in a corner somewhere. The perversion and disease, however, has not changed all these centuries later. The Bible bears it out more explicitly than any of our guarded forums. The king of Jericho knew who she was. The men knew who she was. Her house was the last place they would finally look. And the Bible says that the king told her, Bring out those men that came into your house because they have come to hurt us to spy out the land. But Rahab hid them. She hid them in the stalks of flax that lay atop her roof. They were hidden in what we might think as large shingles. She had nothing to offer them but protection and shelter. She is a woman without rights and without regard. But something is happening in the scriptures. I've got to tell you about it. I've got to preach about it today. And I read from the NIV in Joshua chapter 2 verse 8. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you and when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted. Everyone's courage failed because of you. Are you ready? Here it is. For the Lord, your God, is God. He's the God in heaven above. He's the God in the earth below. And then, now please, swear to me. Make a promise to me. Give me an oath that by the Lord you'll show kindness to my family. Because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign I need help. That you'll spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brother and my sister. And all who belong to them. And that you will save us from death. Did you catch the turn, ladies and gentlemen? There's a turn. Rahab made a turn. She said, I know the Lord has given this to you. We're full of fear. We heard the testimonies of Yahweh and our hearts melted. We've lost our courage. This city, no matter how high it looks, no matter how grand it looks, no matter how high the walls, it's lost its courage because the Lord, your God, is God. There it is, everybody. It's a declaration of acknowledgement. There's the turn. Here's the declaration. Hebrews 11 and 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that God is. And God is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. When you come to God, you just need to say, God, you're God. Lord, you're the God of heaven. You're the God below. And the first thing you do is just acknowledge him. You're the Father. You're the God. You're the Savior. The Lord is God. And Rahab said, I know who I am. I know that I should die here. We've all lost our courage. The entire city is gripped with fear. A great fear of you have fallen on us. Everybody in the country are melting with fear because of you. And then she made a turn. You see, ladies and gentlemen, repentance is the turn. Repentance means about face. When you repent, she was a Canaanite. Do you hear me? She was a harlot. She had no right. She had no privilege. She had no advantage. She had no license. Rahab was the lowest among the low. But she made a turn. She said, the Lord is God, and I need help and the spies said this we'll make an oath to you 
If you bind this scarlet rope, she let them down by a scarlet rope out of their, out of her window to escape. She said, if you'll, it, they said, if you'll tie the scarlet rope in your window, and you'll bring all your, your family, your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, all your family, put them in the house. When the city falls, you'll be saved. And the spies left. And then Israel came back. They began to advance. And Joshua and Israel marched seven days around the well-fortified city. On the seventh day, they marched seven times. Those massive walls upon which a chariot could drive came crumbling down. Israel rushed inside and they burned the city to the ground. It was over and God gave the victory and Joshua claimed the land. And here it is. Joshua 6.16. It came to pass at the seventh time when the priest blew the trumpets. Joshua said unto the people, shout for the Lord hath given you the city. And the city, he said, shall be accursed, even it. All that are in to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all that are in her house because she hid the messengers that we sent. Skip ahead to verse 25. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her father's household and all that she had. She dwelled in Israel even to this day because she hid the messengers. Look at that. She dwelled in Israel even to this day because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Can I tell you, God did not forget about Rahab. The city fell, but the house with the crimson rope stood strong. Think of this now. Forty years prior, the tenth plague, Moses told the people, kill a lamb, eat the lamb, and put the blood of the lamb on the outer doorpost of your home. So that when judgment comes and an angel comes to take the firstborn son, that angel will pass over your house and you'll be saved. That's why they called it the Passover. Because the blood on the outside caused judgment to pass over. And the image of the blood on the doorpost was held true as the final plague took place four decades prior to Jericho. And now, two spies tell Rahab that scarlet rope, that red rope, hang it from your window, and it will give pause to the judgment that's going to come. And your house is going to be safe. She had no right, ladies and gentlemen, but she had the blood. And nothing can get past the blood. I hope you can hear this now. The absence of rights, the absence of a heritage, the absence of a family name, and the absence of a lineage is no match for the crimson stream of blood. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what your past was. When the blood is applied to your life, judgment is held at bay. And here's the inclusion of four women who do not belong They do not belong. But the tale is told of Paul to the church at Rome. And I read from the NLT Bible, Romans chapter 11, verse 17, as Paul told the church at Rome, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, 
though we were a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches are broken off so that I can be grafted in. That's true, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand today by faith. So don't be arrogant. But be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. I had no right, but he made a way. I wasn't supposed to be here, but he made a way. I wasn't in the original, but he made a way. I just want to say something today. You don't support the church. The church supports you. You ain't holding up God. God's holding up you. You didn't bring anything good to God. God gave everything to you. When you return something to your tithes and offerings, it's because God put it there to begin with. Oh, you ought to be clapping your hands because you got in. You got in. You got in. You were brought in. I'm, I'm feeling a little Paul Harvey here right now. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Rahab was from Cana. But when she came out, ladies and gentlemen, she came out through faith. She had nothing to trust in except the oath of some spies. She could have run to another place. She could have felt that it was better if they escaped to another land. Are you hearing, Pastor, now? But through faith and obedience, she was spared. Faith and obedience, and I wish I had time. And when the battle was over, Jericho was torn down, burned down, and dismantled. Rahab, the Bible says, your Bible says, she took up residence with the children of Israel. We don't know the exact details, but I've been around the block. She was living with the people of God. She took on the customs of the people of God. (laughs) And the traditions of the people of God. We know this. She became part of them. And a man named Salmon, who probably got angry, all the people making dumb jokes in his name. That's probably not true. Started looking her way. And custom has not been changed. The Hebrew people have not been changed. Which means that he had to have permission from the elders to court her. Since she has no family but her father and mother, he could have gone to the father, but he actually had to go to someone up above him to get permission to court her. And then he had to have the blessings of the people around. And then there was a period of time during that courtship where he had to make offerings to the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Because he fell in love with her and he wanted to marry her. And Salmon married her <laughs> and brought her in to him. And the woman with no rights was grafted into the lineage of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
<laughs> Obedience kept her. Faith brought her out, but the blood brought her in. Woo! Obedience kept her safe from her present, but grace introduced her to a whole new future. Let me put it this way. The fear of the Lord was Rahab's introduction, but the scarlet rope signified the redeeming blood of the Lamb. Welcome to the family. Salmon married Rahab and they had a son whose name was Boaz and Boaz knew the origin of his own mother Rahab he had no problem asking for the hand of a displaced disowned young Moabite widow woman named Ruth (laughs) I know where my mama came from so I won't judge you oh If you only knew where you came from, all that judgmentalism in your brain, it would dissipate. Because you didn't come from where you think you came from. Ah, I wish I had the time to tell you about Ruth. I don't have time. Boaz loved Ruth. And they had a baby named Obed. And Obed married and had a son named Jesse. And Jesse got married. He had eight sons. And the last one was a shepherd boy by trade, but a king by anointing. His name was David. Rahab and Ruth had no rights, but God made a way. They had no inherent claim to the family lineage, but God did a work and he grafted them in. And in your Bible, the Bible says that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost to write the scriptures, which means that by divine order, and much to the chagrin and dismay of the unbelieving Jews, Matthew chapter 1 calls out four women simply to show us, among other things, that God... Is greater than your origin. I got to tell somebody, God is greater than your past. God is greater than your failure. God is greater than where you came from. He's greater than your history. God is greater. Welcome to the family. Just stand with me now. All of us had no right to be except the Lord made us a showcase of his mercy. Can you hear pastor while you're standing? Can you hear me while you're standing? A right is a privilege. It may be earned or inherited. It may be handed down or acquired. A right is an entitlement that something is due you by birth or by order or by sanction. But tell me, who is it that sits here with a right I know not any. So I preach to us. God is greater. I want to tell you right now, God is greater. Your heavenly father is greater than your earthly father. You may love your earthly father. I don't I do not know. And while the last name of your earthly father might garnish some weight among your peers or your community, your heavenly father is called after the name which is above every other name, Jesus. There's no name like Jesus. I want to tell somebody here, you have a right to worship. You have a right to praise God. That's the rights you have because God gave you that right because before that you were lost and undone and alone and empty and cold and naked and starving and without the blood and the mercy of our great God you shouldn't even be in this building or even know about him. 
but he grafted you in. I'll tell you a little something. I shouldn't be here either. I shouldn't be standing where I'm standing, but God made a way. I shouldn't even have reached this city, but God made a way. I should have been, when I got here, I should have been run out and run through. Statistically speaking, I should have long since moved away. I have no right to stand here, but the blood kept me. In fact, if you look back in my heritage, I don't have anything but a country church with a bunch of wild worship services. No formal training in my early years. No in-depth understanding of my early years. All I had was praise and worship and a daddy who preached and a mama who played the piano. But my lacking growing up was no match for his mercy. And I feel confident today to preach to all of you because I have safely assumed that all of you were saved by grace just like me. And I'm provoking you today to a worship style, a, a lifestyle that you would raise up your voices and your hearts and your hands and say, God made a way, even though I did not have a right to be here, God made a way.